We're in 2 Samuel. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 16, we're pursuing a verse-by-verse and chapter-by-chapter study of 2 Samuel. We're calling it Studies in the Life of David because he obviously is the prominent character. And these character studies, as we encounter the various uh, episodes and events of David's life, they help us to understand some things about our life in the 21st century. 2 Samuel chapter 16, we're putting in at verse 14. And uh, we hope to get through chapter 17, verse 23. The topic we're going to find, David's traitorous son Absalom marches into Jerusalem and claims the throne for himself, openly committing an act of shameful immorality. The title of our message, Son of Anarchy. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our word this morning. Uh, I pray, Lord, that it would search our hearts and that there we would see our love for you and that it would well up in us and increase in us. Uh, Lord, we're the only ones in this relationship that sometimes uh, leave our first love and need to be reminded of how much you loved us and love us still. I pray that you would do that, Lord, uh, and that when we leave this place, we would just be overflowing with the love of God for a lost world through Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. Now the writer of 2 Samuel went out of his way to emphasize that Hushai was King David's friend. When Hushai was first introduced in chapter 15, he was called David's friend. Here in our text, he's going to be described as David's friend and then twice he's going to be called David's friend by Absalom. Considering he's the only person in this book called David's friend, Either David didn't have too many friends or the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something. And of course, it's the latter. He's reminding us that we are friends of the king, the way Hushai was friends of David. In his final talk with his disciples, Jesus said, and I quote, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. John 15, verse 15. There's another parallel between us and Hushai. King David had departed And for a short time, his kingdom would be subject to the rule of a traitor. Likewise, Jesus has departed, and though the rightful king, a wrongful king, Satan, is on the loose, Hushai was left behind with the assignment of representing David and doing whatever he could to restrain Absalom. We've been left behind between the ascension of Jesus to heaven and his, uh, well, the second coming, essentially, but the rapture of the church for us, and we're tasked with representing the Lord with restraining evil. We should not expect every detail in this episode to have a direct counterpart. I think sometimes when we start to see types and illustrations, we want everything to have a very specific meaning, and and that's not the case because these are real historical events. Uh, But in general, we can see a big picture view, and we'll see there that Hushai's courage inspires our own boldness to serve the Lord here in enemy territory on the earth while we await his coming for us from heaven. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you're the friend who remains to represent the rightful king. And number two, you're the friend who remains to restrain the wrongful king. Let's take a look at chapter 16 verse about representing the rightful king. Uh, If you remember our previous study, or if you read just a couple verses behind, Hushai had wanted to accompany David as he fled for his life from Absalom, but instead David asked him to remain. 
It may sound a bit morbid at first, but there's a part of every Christian's heart that desires to depart and be with the Lord. It's not just to avoid the immense amount of suffering that occurs in your lifetime, but it's to be with the one that you love and who loves you and to be with the believing loved ones who have preceded you in death. Uh, Probably a generalization, but I think the older you get, the more you think about heaven. Uh, That would make sense. Uh, And uh, not just because you're getting closer to dying, uh, although, you know, life is a vapor. People die at any age. We just don't think about dying as much until we get older. Uh, But uh, the more you live, the more suffering you see and encounter and and live through. Uh, And and if you're a a Christian, there's a part of you that, that just wants to go home and be with the Lord. Uh, Some of it is an escapism, but who doesn't want to escape suffering and pain and sorrow and all of that? But a lot of it just has to do with the fact that this is the person who came and died and rose from the dead and loved you so much that while you were yet a sinner, uh, he did all of that. Uh, The person that you want to know more fully, uh, who you get up in the morning to spend time with and who you desire to fill you with his spirit and all of that. Uh, And so... You know, Hushai is just an example of the he wanted to be with David. Uh, and, and we want to be with the Lord. Uh, Jesus' disciples, on the night before his crucifixion, they wanted to accompany him, but he told them they couldn't go where he was going. Not yet, anyway. He was going by way of the cross and resurrection to be with the Father. He'd be busy in heaven preparing a place for us, and he would come back for us. Meantime, this is what he asked of his father, our father, to do for us. This is from John 17. Jesus said in his prayer to his father, he said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so, so this is the point of contact. Uh, just like Hushai was, uh, you know, remained behind to minister for David, Jesus said, look, these are my disciples, Father. I don't want you to take them out of the world. They need to minister in the world until uh, the time is right uh, and all of those who will believe through their testimony. And so we remain and are on assignment to represent the Lord Hushai is a type of all of us. Now, we're going to have to move quickly through this story to get through all the verses, looking only at the big ideas as we go. And so let's begin in verse 14. Now, the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Again, just as a reminder for those of you who maybe weren't here last week or haven't been here before, David's son Absalom was marching toward Jerusalem to take the throne. David thought it best for his people to not fight So he fled. In a strategic move, David had asked Hushai to remain in the palace to both report and thwart the plans of Absalom. Verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? And why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, 
so I will be in your presence. Now let's get something out of the way. Hushai either lied outright or he used deception, which is the same as lying. Some of the commentators, it's kind of comical to read. They try and say that he used tact and diplomacy and he never really said he was going to serve Absalom. He said, you know, I'm going to serve before you and he was really serving David. But even if that's the case, he was deceiving Absalom. He either lied outright or he was deceiving Absalom. Absalom, And it begs the question that people ask all the time, is it ever all right for a Christian to lie? Christian scholars have given different answers to that question based on the fact that certain Bible characters did sometimes lie, especially in order to save lives. Hushai is an example. So are the Hebrew midwives who lied to Pharaoh in order to save the lives of the babies he ordered murdered. Or Rahab who hid the two Hebrew spies when the soldiers of Jericho were seeking them. Uh, Norman Geisler summarizes three main approaches to this question. Is it all right for a Christian to lie? Number one, lying is always wrong. Therefore, there are no exceptions to telling the truth. Results are never to be used as a rationale for lying. Number two, lying is forgivable. Therefore, where absolute moral laws run into conflict, such as you have to lie to save a life, it's our duty to do the lesser evil. And if you break God's law in the process, then you would plead for forgiveness and mercy. And number three, lying is actually sometimes right because there are higher laws. Hushai obviously thought that in times of war, either lying was forgivable or that it was all right. Because there was a higher law. Which is it? Well, you're going to have to decide for yourself. And I'm not trying to dodge the question, but really, uh, those are answers that Christians give. And I, I wouldn't put anybody in any of those categories and say, well, you're not a Christian if this is your answer. And let me suggest that unless or until you are in a situation in which the truth could get someone killed, you don't really know what you would do. But I'm guessing that you would lie. Does it make it right? Um, I think lying is wrong. But uh, I I know that throughout the history of uh, Christendom and in the Bible, uh, there are times when Christians have lied to serve a greater good. Now, the story doesn't resolve this issue, nor is it really meant to. It's not a license to lie. Far from it. It's here to show us that when we remain to represent the king, we might find ourselves in very difficult circumstances. I like to remind you of that because a lot of times as Christians, we think it's strange when we're in some fiery trial or some terrible circumstance. That's the very first thing I always think when there's a problem. I think, huh, this is strange. I'm a Christian. I thought God was going to bless me. And then I hear the words of Jesus saying, in the world you will have what? Tribulation. So be of good cheer. So I guess God wants me to be really happy. wants me to have tons of cheer. Cheers to you, Gene. Here's some trials for you. And, and so I, I, those are, and they're very difficult. Sometimes you think, hey, these, this is so difficult, I can't even believe it. Moral dilemmas will present themselves at home, at work, in school. Most of them will not involve the loss of someone's life. They will, in fact, require that we not bow down to someone's idol, that we do tell the truth as we represent our king. Uh, A lot of the trials that we're going to be involved with uh, have to do with our own life and livelihood. They're more like the uh, friends of Daniel in 
the Babylonian times when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the king said, hey, you're going to bow down to my idol. And they say, yeah, no, we're not. And then he said, yes, you are. And they said, no, you're not. You know the story. And they finally called me and said, what's with you guys? I'm going to have to kill you if you don't bow down to my idol. And they said, okay, we're just not going to do it. We are not going to make that compromise. They weren't going to lie, as it were, in that situation uh, because it was their own life that was on the line. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he said, I'm mad now. You don't want to get me mad. Uh, and he, they said, look, either we're going to be delivered from this or we're going to die, but we are not going to bow to your idol. And so he heated up the furnace so hot that when the men threw them into the furnace, his soldiers died from the, the heat. And then he looked in and here were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking around with a fourth person. Uh, who Nebuchadnezzar later said, look like the Son of God. And they were just having fellowship with Jesus in the midst of their trial. And then they came out, didn't even smell like smoke, which is a hard thing to do when you're in a furnace. You know, it's amazing to me, this is not, uh, you know, if you're a smoker, God bless you, but, you know, if somebody was smoking at the mall right now, you'd smell it. I mean, man, how does that stuff fill the air? So these guys are in a fiery furnace, that's you know used to smelt and do all this stuff. Other guys had burned up around them, and they come out and they don't even need dry cleaning. You know they they're perfect and stuff. And so that's more of the trial we're going to be in, where we are called upon to take a stand for the truth and tell the truth. Uh, Hushai was in a unique situation where telling the truth would have caused uh, harm and death to people. Uh, so, verse twenty. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, it's as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Now, the fact that Ahithophel's advice was, it says, as if one had inquired at the oracle of God, does not mean that he was a prophet or even a godly man. It means that his worldly wisdom was so spot on that it could be compared with God knowing the future. I mean, when, when you asked Ahithophel his opinion and he gave it, he was always right. He didn't seek the Lord. He just was as wise as a worldly man could be. And they said, man, you don't even need to, to have a prophet. You don't need to seek the Lord. You just need to ask Ahithophel. He's the guy you would ask him, what are you investing in today? What stocks, you know, are, do you think are hot? And you would just ride his coattails. The guy was always right. Worldly wisdom may seem spot on or it may just seem overwhelming since all the non-believers around you accept it while rejecting the things of the Lord. Some of you, maybe you were Christians uh, when you first, it, it, maybe you went away to college. Uh, and, you know, you were raised in a Christian home, uh, solid in the things you believe, and then you went away to a, probably a secular college. And man, do you get hammered. Uh, there's, a, there's a subtle satanic conspiracy to undermine your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And there's all these smart, supposedly intelligent individuals who have studied these things, you know, and are really brilliant. And they're telling you, you know, that what you believe uh, is on a shaky foundation and all this. And, and chances are you're one of a hundred you know, at that school, maybe one or two Christians in a class and the other Christian doesn't want to let anybody know that they're a Christian. And so it's rough. The world and its wisdom can seem overwhelming sometimes and you feel small and weak and insignificant. But at those times you need to remember that Jesus has chosen you as a small, weak individual to confound the wise with their worldly wisdom. If you'll just hold fast to the precepts and principles found in God's Word, you will confound them. Now, why does Ahithophel suggest such an awful, immoral act be performed? Well, if you do a little research in the Word, it turns out that he is the grandfather of Bathsheba. David had sexually assaulted his granddaughter and then arranged for the murder of his grandson-in-law, Uriah. Now Ahithophel has the opportunity to do to David what David had in fact done to him. David went out on the rooftop, you remember, and he saw Bathsheba bathing and he took her to himself. He assaulted her and the whole story unfolded from there. And so Ahithophel says, you go up on that very rooftop where David committed his sin against my granddaughter and you sleep with his concubines and people will despise you for it, but they'll see that you are the king. And so this, uh, you know, not a nice man. Uh, I understand the need for revenge to make a great Hollywood thing, you know, and stuff, the, the revenge factor and stuff, but not at all a nice man. Now, remember, we want to look at the big picture being drawn for us by these characters. It's no easy assignment being asked to remain and represent the departed king. I mean, we've only a few verses into this, and Hushai already had to navigate difficult moral waters and he finds himself in a moral cesspool uh, as, uh, you know, Ahithophel is giving this uh, awful advice. And so, you know, that's kind of, uh, you know, by extension, that's our Christian life, isn't it? Uh, the world we live in is a moral cesspool. And you get tainted by it everywhere you look, everything you hear. Every now and then... I have to admit, and I I hate to admit this, but I have to admit that uh, I'm not as sensitive to foul language as I should be because I grew up uh, in an atmosphere of foul language. It was just the way people talked. My dad, my mom, my brothers, myself, everybody I was around. But even in that atmosphere, there were times that people didn't swear, they didn't cuss, Generally speaking, within your family, everybody might cuss, but if you were out and about in a store around women and children, nobody really cussed, or if they did, everybody was on you about it. Because you didn't want, you know, you knew children were going to grow up to cuss, but you didn't want them to grow up too soon, I guess, you know. Now it's like, man, you know, I think, wow, if I'm not very sensitive to cussing and I'm hearing all this, what must it be like for a person who grows up you know, in, a, in a more pure atmosphere? I mean, every, everybody at the store, everybody, you know, the boom boxes and the car stereos and, and the bumper stickers. And I mean, you can't get away from the moral cesspool that we live in. And yet you remember Jesus said, Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. They're going to have to stay. We're going to have to empower them because there are people that need to hear about me. 
And so, uh, you know, and then along the lines, there's these moral dilemmas. Gosh, if I live for the Lord, if I stand up for the truth, I might be passed over for promotion. I might never get ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be ridiculed and scorned. Nevertheless, that's the assignment. And we ought to approach it with humility and prayer in private, expecting God to give us courage and boldness in public. And again, three of my favorite guys in the Bible, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're just cool guys. You know, and they're, they're just, hey, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this, this guy has the power of life and death. He's the most you know, powerful monarch on the earth. And they just look at him, I think, with a smirk on their face and say, we're not bound down to your idol. God's going to save us or we're going to die. But either way, we win. And there's a, there's a certain charm to that, isn't there? I mean, looking at it, you think, oh, I don't want to go through something like that. But to take a stand like that for Jesus Christ in small ways or big ways, uh, that's what the Lord has called us to do. Now, let's take a look at the friend who remains to restrain the wrongful king in chapter 17. Christians are tasked by Jesus with being salt and light. In other words, we're to act as a preservative to a deteriorating culture, exposing its sin and offering an alternative. In another portion of Scripture, we're told that the Spirit-indwelt church on earth is a restrainer of wickedness and will be until we are removed at the rapture. In yet another place, we're described as hastening the return of Jesus by our lives and our lifestyle choices in these last days. Hushai was able to restrain Absalom's plans and to hasten David's return as the rightful king. In our own small ways, as we simply obey the Lord and walk with him as salt, as light, we too restrain wickedness and, in a sense, hasten the return of the king. And so verse 1, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he was weary and weak, Make him afraid. All the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now remember that David and those with him had grown weary, and they had stopped to rest, and they were vulnerable. If Absalom had followed Ahithophel's advice, David almost certainly would have been killed. Your enemy, Satan, is constantly planning against you. I, I don't want to make you paranoid because you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, but you do need to know that there are schemes and plans being formed against you. And he is super intelligent and his devices are as devious as they are dangerous. It seems he has the upper hand, in fact, until you look to the Lord who thwarts him and causes his own plans for you to prosper. So verse 5. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he says too. Then Hushai came to Absalom and Absalom spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good this time. For said Hushai, you know your father and his men that they are mighty men. They are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, there's a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man. 
and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go in battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall be not left so much as one. Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. What Hushai suggested was a brilliant stall tactic. I'm guessing he had little time to think about what he might say. He let God use him, speak through him as it were. That's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to use your mouth to speak for him and he can. Verse 14, so Absalom and all the men of Israel said, Ah, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. Absalom had his plans. God overruled them to accomplish his plans. God has a plan. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a man in order to die on the cross as our substitute and savior. Against all the devil's efforts throughout history to thwart that plan, Jesus was born, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven from whence he will return just as he promised and just as God planned. Verse 15, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, And thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, Don't spend the night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Hamaz stayed at Enrogel, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, but both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Baharim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. Then the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, Oh, they've gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. I could have titled this study, Liar, Liar. Hushai lied, and now the woman lied. It was to save lives. The Bible doesn't commend her for it simply reports what happened. Whether she thought it was wrong, but forgivable or right because it was a higher law, many lives were spared. If, God forbid, the day comes that Christianity is outlawed and they seek Christians out to imprison and kill, if in that day you hid your children when the people were at your door to take you away, if they asked you if there was anyone else in the house, Knowing that they would kill your children, what would you do? Would you admit your children were hiding in the house, knowing to admit it would mean sure imprisonment and most likely death? Or would you say there was no one else in the house, giving them a chance to get away and possibly survive? When we ask, is it ever all right to lie, we're not talking about most of the lying that people do. We're not talking about lying to make ourselves look better or to save face or to make someone else look bad. Uh, But if your answer to the question, is it ever all right to lie, is no, never, no matter what, 
then you would have killed the Hebrew babies, you would have turned in the spies at Jericho, you would have revealed the location of these two men, and you might one day have to turn over your children to a death squad. Uh, So let's just be honest with ourselves about lying uh, and figure out that there are situations in which Christians do lie. Uh, Is it all right? It's not a matter of it being all right. It's a matter of how God looks upon it. Uh, And uh, again, so when we say, is it all right for a Christian to lie? And and it sounds like the answer might be yes in some situations. We're definitely not talking about the 99.99% of the times that we do lie uh, for whatever reason. And uh, maybe one or two of us in the course of our lifetime will be in a situation like this where uh, we're forced with telling a lie to save a life. Uh, So is it all right to lie? No, it's not all right to lie. Uh, sometimes we do lie, just make sure that it's a situation like this. Verse 21, Now it came to pass after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. Hushai's strategy gave David warning and he took advantage of it to put the Jordan River between him and his pursuers. Here's a devotional thought for you to meditate on. The devil is hard after you. He will utilize the world and your flesh seeking to destroy you. You should not rest. God, however, gives you warnings as you read his word, as you fellowship with his people, as you talk to him in prayer. He warns you about the subtle and not so subtle influences that can overcome you, that will overwhelm you. What has the Lord been warning you about? If you think yourself strong, you'll fail and you'll fall. Heed the warnings and then put some spiritual barriers between you and the traps that are being set for you. David physically said, we're going to cross the Jordan right now because that gives us time. Uh, it's a barrier, it's a physical barrier, and so when the armies of Israel come against us, we'll have that much more uh, protection. And so he got his people across the Jordan. You and I need to have spiritual barriers around our lives uh, as we read the Word, as we fellowship with God's people, as we serve the Lord, all of these various things that we're called to do so that we are protected. Because the enemy is coming. He is coming and we need to have our walls up and our barriers in place. And so verse 23, now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey. He arose and went home to his house, to his city, put his household in order and he hanged himself and he died and he was buried in his father's tomb. Ahithophel undoubtedly knew that God had thwarted his counsel to the end that David would ultimately be triumphant and return to the throne. Once David returned, Ahithophel's life wouldn't be worth spit and he'd likely be executed for treason and so he decided to kill himself. Ahithophel was at the top of his game. His advice was considered as accurate as what you would get if you inquired of God, only he didn't need God. He had all the world's wisdom. He was the epitome of the worldly man, the career man, establishing himself and building for himself. He was revered, he was admired, he was sought out, he was looked up to. Then it all came crashing down because he was outside of God's plan. What does it matter if you gain the whole world, but in the end, lose your soul? And so Ahithophel put his household in order. 
The things a person does or says at the end of their life reveals a lot about where their heart was at. In the end, his focus was still on the earthly. He was motivated to be certain his wishes were carried out, that his earthly empire continued. And then he killed himself, revealing the absolute emptiness and vanity of his entire life on earth. It's, it's tragically comic. He decides to go home and to kill himself. But before he does, he says, I want to put all of my affairs in order. Because why? Because I am the worldly man. I am the earthly man. I think only backwards. My future on the earth is now ruined because I fell, you know, I threw in with the wrong party. Uh, but rather than think about my eternity, I'm just going to think about what I built and making sure someone else can tend it after I'm gone and then I'm going to end my life and go into a Christless eternity. It's, it's pretty pathetic, really. Ahithophel is a dramatic example of what the devil wants to do to people. He wants to prosper them in this world, whether he actually is able to do it or not, or just sometimes the promise of prosperity is enough. You know, you think, well, you know, the devil, you know, he's not prospering everybody. No, but there's the promise. Every day people get up and say, tomorrow I'm going to have a better life on earth. And this is, a lot of you have been there. Maybe some of you are there if you're not a Christian. Uh, you know, where you think, hey, I just need to work really, really, really hard for five years. And then I'll be established. And then I can spend time with my family and we can go on vacation and I can have a relationship with my husband or my wife or those kinds of things. Five years turns into seven and seven to 15 and 15 turns into a lifetime of pursuing some gold ring because you never, you know, once you start down that path, you never really have enough. It's never enough. There's always a bigger house, another car, uh, you know, something else that you want to do. And sadly, for a lot of people in the world, there's several families along the way as well. As there's a marriage and a divorce and a marriage and a divorce, you know. And, and th the worst thing I think that could happen at the end of all that is that you could actually arrive and say, yeah, okay, now I do have a life. I always want more, but I've got enough to live on. And I'm going to go and do whatever I want to do. Make sure that all my affairs are always in order. And maybe it doesn't end up with you killing yourself, but it will end up with you facing a Christless eternity because all you've ever done is looked ahead to what this world has to offer you. Uh, and, and Ahithophel should stand as an example to us uh, of the emptiness of all of that. We remain to hopefully thwart the plans of the devil to destroy people's lives like that. Our very presence on the earth in the places we've been sent is itself a restraining force because there are things that go on spiritually that, that we don't always understand. I know sometimes you think that your witness and your testimony is weak, and maybe it is, maybe that's a true statement, but believe me, there are people who know you are a Christian, that your life belongs to Jesus Christ, and it, it has an effect on them. You may not see it, uh, you may not ever see it, but there's a spiritual dimension in which these transactions take place. How much better if we also uh, back it up with our testimony. And so we're here to thwart the plans of the devil who wants to destroy non-believers. And so maybe things are tough for you at home or at work or in school. If you are where you are supposed to be, and you probably are, most people are, 
Consider how much worse things would be for the non-believers around you if you were to remove yourself from those places. You may be the only salt, the only light, uh, the only restraint in that place where you find yourself. Is it hard? Yes. Is it impossible? No, because all things are possible through Christ who strengthens you. Uh, And you can actually get excited about it. Think, Lord, what are you and I going to accomplish today in the lives of these Ahithophels who are rushing headlong to destruction? You want to save them, Lord. Thank you for putting me here. Because if I weren't here, they wouldn't have that testimony. You'd have to put another Christian here. And so essentially I'm saying, I want, you know, remember, you know that expression, I wouldn't wish this on my best friend? That's what you do when you want to leave a situation that God's... You say, I'm, Lord, I'm wishing this on my best friend. I want another Christian to come and take my place. I don't want to have it as tough. Uh, and the Lord would say, how about you and I just walk together through this? And I show you some things uh, about our love. In Luke uh, chapter 19, Jesus told a parable. I'll just read it to you quickly. It's a short one. He says, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said... A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. He called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas and said to them, Occupy till I come. We could summarize everything we've said today in the phrase, Occupy till I come. Commenting on this, J.C. Ryle wrote, The Lord Jesus bids you occupy. By that he uh, he means, excuse me, that you are to be a doer in your Christianity and not merely a hearer and a professor. He wants his servants not only to receive his wages and eat his bread and dwell in his house and belong to his family, but also to do his work. You are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. You're to do it till he comes. You're to be continually looking for, and I would add, longing for his return. Quoting Ryle again, he said, that old rebel, the devil and his adherents, they'll be cast down. The Lord Jesus and all his saints shall be exalted and raised to honor. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. You and I are on assignment as the friends of Jesus Christ. We're sent out to represent him and to restrain that which is opposed to him. It's not an easy assignment, but we're never alone in it. Amen. Let's pray.